Welcome, everyone. My name is Susan Kratsky, and I am a senior policy analyst with MPI's international program. I want to welcome you to our webinar, uh, either this morning or this afternoon, depending on where you're joining from, uh, Engaging Local Voices, Letting Cities Inform National Refugee Resettlement Goals. Uh, a couple of housekeeping notes before we get started. If you have any technical problems, please email events at migrationpolicy.org. We will have a question and answer period at the end of the call so that you are able to um, engage uh, with our, our expert panelists that we have on today. The question and answer will not be a voice question and answer. Uh, instead, please submit any questions you might have into the Q&A box in the webinar or you can email them to events at migrationpolicy.org. I also want to note that the conversation we are having today is informed by a report we published recently, Improving Stakeholder Coordination in Refugee Resettlement, a Path to More Effective Inclusive Programs, and you can find that report at the link on your screen. So without further ado, let's uh, get started and jump into our conversation. We are gathering here uh, in mid-November uh, on the eve of the second ever Global Refugee Forum, which will be held in Geneva in December. The forum will provide an opportunity for states and other stakeholders to reflect on the progress that's been made towards accomplishing the objectives of the Global Compact on Refugees and to make pledges towards meeting uh, the new pledges towards meeting the goals of the compact. And this December's forum has been built around a series of large-scale mega-pledges that aim to have a transformative impact by encouraging states and other stakeholders to commit to significant action in particular areas. And this includes several pledges on opening up more pathways like resettlement or opportunities to travel or to study or to work or join family for refugees, what's known as complementary pathways. The pledge, uh, one of the pledges, for example, invites actors to commit um, to helping support the resettlement of 1 million refugees by the year 2030. Another pledge aims to see 200,000 refugees travel to destination countries on labor and education pathways in the next five years. These are really ambitious targets and uh, would really um, results in far more action in this space than, than we've seen to date and scale up what's what's happening around refugee resettlement um, and complementary pathways globally. Yet one of the perennial concerns that um, exists on pledging in international forums like the GRF has always been the question of whether or not pledged targets will actually be delivered once everyone has left the festivities that will be happening in Geneva. And this is a question that's come up around the GRF specifically. Uh, so if we look back to 2019, when the last GRF happened, just 30% of the pledges that were made at that um, forum have actually been fulfilled now five years later. So filling the pledges that are made takes political will, but it also takes capacity. And we look at resettlement in particular, this means capacity not just to move refugees from point A to point B, but also the capacity to support and include refugees in the fabric of the communities um, where they settle once they arrive. And that latter piece is absolutely crucial to the sustainability of resettlement programs. If refugees don't succeed and don't feel and become a part of a community after they're resettled, public support for resettlement won't last and it won't be possible to meet any of the ambitious targets that um, the international community is aiming for in December. In nearly all resettlement programs, it's local governments, cities, towns, and regions that are at the center of welcoming and integrating new refugees. Yet 
those communities rarely have a voice in shaping resettlement commitments that end up at the table on forums like the GRF. So today we want to delve deeper into what the role of cities and regions will be in carrying forward the commitments that states will make in Geneva in a month. How important will local actors be in delivering on these commitments and what can be done to support their success? So I want to turn first to my colleague, Belen Zanzucci, who is an associate poly policy analyst with uh, MPI Europe. Belen is also the author of the report I mentioned at the top on how local communities can be better integrated in resettlement programs. So Belen, could you tell us uh, a, a little bit about why, based on your research, local authorities matter to the success of the resettlement programs? How is their involvement likely to influence the success of the pledges that we'll see in Geneva? And is there anything that can be done to um, ensure that they are going to be adequately supported um, in taking on this role and supporting the success of resettlement programs? Thank you, Susan. And uh, hi, everyone. I apologize for the flicking image from time to time. I think my computer is having just a bad day, so please bear with me. Uh, but yeah, just to tell you a bit about the a bit more about the report. So basically, this report that was uh, published earlier this year basically focused on studying the different resettlement governance structures and procedures in several case studies that included Germany, Spain, Finland, Sweden, Argentina, and also findings from an upcoming report in the U.S. And the aim was basically to identify what gaps, but also what good practices on multi-level consultation, resettlement, and coordination uh, between local, regional, and national level when it comes to refugee resettlement. So basically, we wanted to see if and to what extent local and national authorities were coordinating around decision-making uh, around numbers and placement for refugees, uh, and also to what extent they were informed and coordinated. So basically, we were asking questions such as, are local authorities consulted for decision-making around numbers and, and placement, or uh, does their involvement or lack of involvement influence or buy-in in the resilient process? Uh, are local authorities provided with timely information about arrivals and, and any needs of refugees coming to their cities? Uh, do they have access to funding? Do they have the requested capacity and knowledge and so on and so forth? So I think many of the findings from our report are very relevant, very relevant to consider and keep in mind as the different stakeholders uh, move forward with making and delivering these resettlement and pathway pledges, and also to inform some of the, some of the parallel discussions that should be taking place in addition to uh, discussions on numbers. So, and I guess a first point to address, and I think Susan, you already mentioned it, is by why are we uh, talking about involving local authorities and getting their, getting their buy-in? Um, so why does this matter for delivering on pledging commitments and why should we invest in capacity building efforts and to ensure that they have the funding necessary? So as you know, uh, integration basically happens at the local level. So it is in specific town or city that uh, you have your house or apartment, that children go to school, uh, that you go to the supermarket or talk to neighbors, etc. So and basically, local policymakers can play a key role really in shaping the uh, refugees' integration experience. So they can basically influence the narrative around refugees in that specific area. They can make um, cities and towns more or less welcoming to refugees through the different offices and uh, services that they're offered. And they can also like directly step in to address some of the most important gaps that we have seen around, for example, housing or securing like job uh, opportunities. And also like these local authorities can sometimes like really influence also decisions around numbers and um, and through advocacy 
efforts. And we have seen, for example, from the response to, you, the, to the Ukraine crisis that uh, when these local authorities um, have the opportunity or take the opportunity to, to really step in and, and offer support, there are many um, resources that can be untapped from these opportunities and they can play a very key role for the resettlement space and the pathway space in general. Uh, but uh, what we have seen in our in our report is that um, in most cases, resettlement decisions around numbers, but also around placement, typically remain a top level uh, decision that remains in the hands in the hands of uh, national authorities with little to no space often um, given to local or regional levels, with some exceptions, of course, such as in Finland, where placement is consulted with uh, municipalities. Also in the UK, um, placement is voluntary, and there's also like some consultation happening in the US. Um, but we know that this is more the exception than the rule, and uh, this might be due to the fact that um, decisions around number or placement can or are often considered as a geopolitical um, decision falling within the responsibility of the national level and, and also the perception that there are like multi-level uh, different priorities uh, yeah, and different tasks uh, playing in play or just the fact that it's very like time and resource consuming to consult with different levels around like numbers or placement. But this, uh, what we see in practice is that these um, or the lack of local level involvement and consultation can often and has often backfired. So for example, limited buy-in uh, from the local level can disrupt the smooth functioning of pathways when a local authority doesn't want to welcome refugees or as it has happened, threatens to uh, do it in the worst possible way, uh, definitely negatively impacting the integration of refugees, which is um, yeah, not the goal of uh, these resettlement programs. Uh, placement decisions that are also like made without consultation or input from local authorities um, can also lead to mismatches between some of uh, refugees' skills or needs and also the opportunities, uh, like economic, opportun economic opportunities that some of the local level um, authorities can offer and uh, basically represent the missed opportunities for both parties. And in other cases, we have also seen that this lack of consideration of local authorities' willingness to welcome uh, refugees in decision-making has also impacted numbers. Uh, so, for example, basically, you might end up with lower resettlement quotas uh, compared to the willingness of these local-level stakeholders, as we have seen, for example, in Germany or in Sweden uh, some years ago. So uh, the other important thing that we notice also in our report is that beyond this lack or of limited uh, consultation with local authorities, we often see that many uh, that there are gaps like in communication and coordination. So basically, ideally, um, in these pathways, you should have like multi-level uh, mechanisms and tools that allow for information to flow through different levels. So basically, that. Um, cities are timely informed about when refugees are arriving, what uh, what are some of the needs that they may have, what is the infrastructure that needs to be in place. But again, this uh, we have seen that it's often not the place. Um, and in practice, this has meant that local communities may not receive all the adequate information that they need, uh, information about the profile of refugees, the needs, background, uh, exact time of arrivals, etc. And basically, they might be like ill prepared to to welcome and support these refugees as if, as if they are like kind of expected to to complete uh, the puzzle the puzzle, but like without really knowing what it resembles of. Um, 
And, uh, and this is surprising because of what we have seen like in different crises like COVID, but also Ukraine, is that where these mechanisms and this uh, communication is already in place, uh, it's extremely useful and really allows you when you actually are in, in a crisis situation uh, to respond in a much more effective and quick manner. So I think just to, yeah, just uh, not to take a lot longer, but I think there are a couple of pillars that could benefit from further investments and potentially support delivery of the GRF uh, pledges in the, in the coming like five years. So I think the first thing that we have seen is that really like designing or pushing for more inclusive like legal framework and resettlement uh, resettlement programs uh, can that facilitate basically local input is very important and this could be done through for example just collecting or allowing input for decision making in in existing programs um, and to inform like just capacity and willingness to welcome refugees from the local level and use that information to um, to make decisions on, on quotas or also to gather input on knowledge of local local interest services job available um, needs uh, resident sentiments also towards refugees etc just like to allow for a better matching or placement processes. In other cases, we have also seen uh, that there is also richness in introducing also like some additional programs. programs. So if there is no, uh, let's say like leeway to maybe flexibilize some of these existing resettlement programs or procedures, it might be worth maybe uh, introducing some alternative programs such as the German land resettlement program that gives um, the regions uh, or the lander level a bit more flexibility um, to, to support refugees and to welcome refugees in Germany, or for example, the Spanish sponsorship, sponsorship program, which takes place at the regional level and has also uh, provided an opportunity for the local level to step in. Um, in addition to, to allowing like better consultation and taking um, taking in consideration some of the input that local authorities may have, I think there's also an opportunity just like to allow for better coordination and communication. So for example, can be uh, through like really creating like kind of a continuum uh, between the pre and post departure um, stages and some countries have done so by, by for example in Ireland, like bringing local authorities to selection missions to make sure that when refugees arrive, they are more aware of the needs and they have a better understanding of what infrastructure and what support is needed in place by the time of arrival. Um, and we have also seen in Germany, for example, that uh, where, when placement authorities are in regular contact with receiving uh, local municipalities, this also creates a channel just like for uh, um, better communication and, and such. And I think just two more points, I think there's also a um, better opportunity to just like uh, make sure that there is sufficient funding at the local level and that also that local authorities know also where they can find these findings. So it can be through flexibilizing more uh, access to European funds or also just like making uh, making sure that the uh, local authorities know where to where to find uh, finding funding av av available to them. And then finally, I think there is also an opportunity to really create capacity. And I think, for example, um, IOM in Finland, UNHCR in Spain, but I'm sure there are many other examples that have really invested capacity in raising awareness at the local level and making sure that local authorities know what we mean exactly when we talk about resettlement, that they know what capacity is needed that they know like what support refugees specifically need um, and that's so that when they 
can, if they want to inform pledges, they can actually make an informed decision on how many refugees they want to welcome and how many refugees they can actually support. So I'll leave it there and uh, happy to take any questions during the Q&A session. Thank you so much, Belen, for that rich set of um, findings and, and recommendations. I think you pointed to a lot of things that will still need to be um, done to actually realize um, the, the pledges that we'll see and ensure that national governments are adequately supporting local authorities in um, receiving and welcoming refugees and ensuring that resettlement programs are successful. So I'd like to um, now introduce Natalie uh, Jaifar, who is the team leader for resettlement at the city of Bristol. She is also a trustee for Bristol City of Sanctuary. And Natalie brings a wealth of firsthand experience to our discussion today from the local level on actually um, welcoming uh, refugees within the, the city of Bristol. But Natalie, can you tell us uh, about what role Bristol has in, in welcoming refugees and what Bristol has done to, um, to make itself a city of sanctuary and to uh, participate in resettlement programs? And do you see any gaps in Bristol's ability to influence or engage with, with national government on policies? Uh, and do you have any advice on uh, or recommendations regarding how cities can be better included in these kinds of conversations? Uh, my name is Natalie Jaffa, as you said, and I work for the resettlement team in Bristol. I also come from a refugee background myself and I'm Chair of Trustees of Bristol City of Sanctuary, which is a local charity branch of the National City of Sanctuary Movement. But I'll be telling you a bit more in detail about City of Sanctuary and as a charity and what it is a bit later on. And so, yeah, I'm going to speak, be speaking to you about collaboration, uh, growing collaboration in Bristol between statutory and non-statutory stakeholders so the first thing, though, to say, which I think has been said already today, is that cities do play the most important part in welcoming refugee populations. And the reason for that is because it's cities, their economies, institutions and citizens, which are the first thing that new arrivals come into contact with. But before we speak about cities as hosts, I think it's important for us to stop and just step back and consider who the people are who are arriving in our cities. Because sometimes there's a wrong assumption that refugees are, you know, people from the Middle Ages, when they are in fact 2023 citizens like you and me, just trying to rebuild their lives, but under really difficult circumstances. So regardless of the circumstances they may be facing, people do come with hope and a desire to contribute skills, to participate as full members of their new societies. But that participation is dependent on the mechanisms that are in place to facilitate their inclusion and belonging. So that makes it really hard for people to rebuild their lives. And we talk about integration but I think it's really important to see that as a two-way process and think about the, how, what the host can do to facilitate that integration, like in inverted commas, yeah? So what are these challenges that we're talking about and circumstances? Firstly, as a personal challenge to consider on many levels. So from the mental health challenge, trauma experience, lack of language acquisition, 
tools to communicate. So there's a huge personal challenge that needs to be recognized that people are facing. And added to that also are the barriers encountered in the systems, which is not just language, but the, the systems are foreign. And for some people will have no parallel with the systems that they've been used to. The UK especially is notorious for having systems that are very complex and tricky to navigate, even for local communities. So, so not also, unfortunately, some institutions could be unconsciously systematically racist or in sometimes consciously in the say in the case of for asylum seekers or what we like we're calling now illegal migrants in inverted commas, which we know are facing a hostile environment. So this is the barriers that people are facing could be racism, you know, institutionally or from populations. Despite the route that people have arrived though, they're the same people with the same protection needs. So in Bristol, there's definitely a two-tier system which which can be experienced depending on the route that people have come from. And this builds a deep feeling of injustice, which in itself is traumatic and shocking to individuals and the, and the help people who are witnessing their treatment, so the helpers, the citizen helpers. For refugees on resettlement pathways, that's not to say that things are easy either. So there, there's still challenges, as you know. In the UK, there's no centralized strategy to like to coordinate the integration. One positive of that is that because there's a lack of a top-down framework and there's devolution of power to local authorities, a positive of that is that that's allowed citizens themselves to grow movements. And Bristol has like a very active voluntary sector and a developing BRAS, which is the Bristol Refugee and Asylum Seeker Partnership, which is a partnership, a collaboration of refugee sector, charitable organizations who are enacting the welcome themselves uh, with very little funding and mainly run by volunteers. So what that's also led to is a grassroots national movement in the UK called City of Sanctuary. And it's a movement that wants to create safety, sanctuary and welcome for all the people seeking sanctuary. Uh, and Bristol has the local branch of the charity, which is linked to the national charity. And it's joined one of many cities who also have now their own local branches. And it's a growing movement which showcases, in a way, the solidarity of host populations towards new arrivals which isn't to be underestimated as a strength. Uh, you know, as we've seen with the crisis in Ukraine, I think Valen just mentioned as well, when thousands of people opened up their homes, showing the level of compassion and will that does exist. And City of Sanctuary uses an award system. So it's a campaigning and influence um, organisation, but also it uses an award system which requires institutions, whether they be schools, healthcare institutions, 
any institution, businesses to self-reflect on their own practices so and their own policies towards include better inclusion and diversity. And it used that is so institutions go through an audit and the system is learn and bed share. So institutions are asked to learn about the experiences of refugees, embed their learning into their policies and share. So raise awareness with their communities or um, try to influence local and national policies to improve the situation that refugees are facing. And these streams, they're called, so that there's different streams that are going through the award. So there's in Bristol, there's a very active school stream, a university stream, and the university stream has generated 18 million, 80 million pounds funding through scholarships for refugees and asylum seekers. Um, there's an art stream being developed, there's faith streams, and we're in, currently designing a business stream. So it's all in development. Um, and Bristol City of Sanctuary also works with the local authority. So the local authority became a, a council of sanctuary in 2011 and currently it's being reaccredited. Uh, so this is like a model in Bristol co-production with the people on the ground doing the welcome as the experts almost. And the people with lived experience having a voice and participating in the decisions that affect them. So Bristol as a city of sanctuary, uh, now the council, I mean the local authority, now has its own asylum seeker and refugee strategy. So despite that there is a national or a UK-wide strategy, Bristol now has its own strategy and other cities also are developing their own or some already have quite active asylum seeker and refugee strategy for their cities, addressing the key challenges and priorities and is actually currently being um, reviewed and developed. So that's just to say that's the role and strength of cities uh, as places of welcome. And yeah, I'm going to leave it there. But following on from that is to say that rock cities and their citizens can influence national policy with time. Yeah, so I'm going to leave it there. But thank you. Thank you so much, Natalie. I think a, a lot of um really uh really interesting reflections i particularly appreciated your point about uh how it's it's not just local government when we're thinking about the role of cities but also civil society and grassroots movements and private citizens who are engaged in supporting um, individuals after they arrive and, and welcoming and including them and when we think about local level engagement it's important to think um much more broadly as well beyond you know simply the sort of multi-level government space but also how how we're engaging with with the local level um more uh more widely and non-governmental actors as well um and as well your your point about how um the uh the the local level itself can you know not just sort of wait for to be consulted by the national level but in fact organize and and bring its um its voice um more more forcefully to the national level uh as well um with you know even if that space isn't voluntarily created by the national level. So thank you so much. Um, finally, I'd like to turn to uh, 
Atapua Akoma, who is a resettlement and complementary pathways officer for the resettlement and complementary pathways service in the division of international protection at the UN High Commissioner for Refugees or UNHCR. But Tapiwa, from your experience working with states on resettlement, what role have you seen local governments play in delivering on resettlements and complementary pathways commitments and what factors can actually limit them in taking on these roles? And you know, I think we'd also be interested in hearing how you see local governments influencing um, the delivery of the GRF pledges on pathways. Tapiwa. Good afternoon again, and thank you for the opportunity to let me speak on the subject today. Um, as had been noted by Bellen and Natalie before, uh, local governments do continue to play a clear role in the successful resettlement and integration of refugees, and thereby contributing to the broader commitment of the com com outlined in the Global Compact of Refugees. Um, this is particularly evident, and this has also been highlighted by my colleagues speaking previously, in ensuring the capacity of states to actually receive refugees that are resettled through the different programs that states put in. This is including through ensuring that the right housing facilities are in place, the education facilities are there, and at the same time also fostering long-term integration. Um, without belaboring the point that my colleagues have already mentioned, we had we saw that uh, in addition for the last couple of years, this lack of capacity on the ground has led to states not being able to commit as much quotas as they could have on resettlement pledges, but also even for the pledges that were committed, the ability to receive refugees was limited if it was not, and for some of the reasons already highlighted in the by Bellin's approach in terms of the capacity that they had or the coordination that happened on the ground. Uh, and uh, we, at the same time, we saw the other converse of that post-COVID where we had a lot of communities being very welcoming to different refugees coming in. We had community sponsorship programs being developed with the idea that the communities are willing to receive those refugees and the numbers are growing. But then again, the people who are arriving are still reliant on the same facilities and the capacity that local authorities are providing. And so, which is part of the reason that as units here, we emphasize that programs that rely on sponsorship or other pathways should always be additional to what states, including through local authorities can provide. Um, in addition to the some of the examples already highlighted in the previous sessions, we saw good examples of this, for instance, in Canada in response to the response to the Syrian crisis, where the mayor of Halifax was very much involved in advocating for increased capacity of uh, refugees to, to come in from Syria, and even spoke in different international forums to kind of like make sure that the capacity at the local level and of sponsors was available. Uh, in Winnipeg, in the past, we had a fund that was established especially to guarantee private sponsors in case that they were not able to meet the commitments that they had put in place. Uh, these are just some of the instances that highlight the role that was played in that way for sponsorship in particular. Um, in other contexts, particularly on the resettlement front, and I saw that Helen also highlighted, Belen also highlighted a, a bit of this, we do have where selection missions actually do go together with the immigration authorities and the local authorities as part of the selection interview missions. And part of the role is really to assess what's integration and what, what needs for integration are needed for the refugee upon arrival in this in the resettlement country. This has the benefit of ensuring that uh, this this the placement and the arrival is planned very well in advance to ensure that all the services that the refugees need are in place by the time they arrive. But we've also seen, unfortunately, in some instances where such involvement leads to integration criteria being a 
criteria for selecting refugees on resettlement, which is something that we UNHCR advocate against because resettlement is based on protection needs and should not really be based on integration criteria. So we see need for really needing further capacity building and working with local authorities to ensure that their need to be able to receive refugees is supported, but also that those who uh, really need uh, really need the support but are not able to be integrated, are not able to have the support services upon integration are not left out because of this. Um, so on our end, we've been working a lot in different ways to kind of like help authorities, I mean, to work with authorities, but also to ensure that the pledges are delivered. Although we do not have direct always have the direct contact available when at the pledging level. But for instance, uh, this role has been very much highlighted in the Third Country Solutions for Refugees Roadmap 2030, which is the main framework for intermediate stakeholder framework that uh, allows for the drive of pledges or the implementation of the pledges that have been made in, implement, in uh, implementation of go three of the Global Compact, which is expanding the uh, third country solutions. Uh, we have noted that it's very important to involve local authorities in designing and implementing programs to support long-term integration. And uh, through the development of this roadmap, we consulted over stake, 100 stakeholders, which also included some local authorities, including in Eurocities and other, other stakeholders that could support this process. Um, we also in view of this expanding programs, you know, we have now a lot of other pathways, complementary pathways that have been coming in. We have a lot of new resettlement countries that have been coming in with different designs and programs. There was need to update our integration handbook, which is the main key reference point for integration for resettled refugees. And this has basically been done and emphasized the, the key need to involve local authorities, but it's also the main toolkit that local authorities can use to refer to and adopt programs. And uh, we have on a local level in different countries, uh, uh, activities that celebrate cities and the role that they play uh, all as an element of trying to include and welcome refugees and to basically highlight the positive influence of resettled refugees. Um, I think I can talk a lot about the work that we've been doing in this regard. And I think the key element, as you mentioned, Susan, in the initial intervention is how do we ensure that these pledges are brought forward? Because commitment is one element and involving local authorities is one area. But the key element is that really it doesn't stop at the GRF. There's need for ongoing coordination, even past the GRF. And uh, it's not only essential for fulfilling the international commitments, but also contributes to positive transformation, especially narratives around refugees and broader migration in general. Uh, during the GRF, there will be a whole Solidarity in Cities event that will happen. It's a high-level event where we'll have 50 mayors coming from different countries and working together with the Mayor's Migration Council. And the aim is really just to emphasize, and this is more on broader pledges that have been made by different cities. It ranges from different things like climate action, general integration in other aspects. But all these highlight the point that the expansion of third country solutions, particularly resettlement and complementary pathways, is not one that should be seen in isolation, but that also to make the connection between the linkages between what mayors are doing in this space and and lawyers and local authorities and the impact it can have on uh, future programs that come into play. Thank you. 
Thank you, Tapiwa. A lot of um, exciting things I think happening in, in the lead up to the GRF and very interesting to hear how you all are specifically engaging um, with cities, but also with uh, national governments around what they can do to support the role of, of cities as well. Uh, so we've reached the, the time in the program where we would like to hear from you all and invite you to share your questions for our expert panelists. Um, please, as we move into the Q&A period, uh, please go ahead and type your questions into the Q&A uh, chat box, or you can email them to events at migrationpolicy.org. Uh, you can also tweet your questions to at migrationpolicy or hashtag MPI uh, discuss. So, um, I'm not seeing any questions come up quite yet, so please feel free to um, drop those in uh, in the box. And in the meantime, I will take my um, moderator's prerogative and ask the first question. Um, so I'd like to uh, to maybe come back to each of the panelists and and ask you know, uh, very specifically. Resettling 1 million refugees by 2030 is a big commitment. Um, if you could you know, wave your magic wand and have one thing happen differently um, at the uh, at the local level to ensure that this is able to able to take place, what would um, what would it be? What would your one recommendation be for either for local authorities or, or for national government um, with regard to what needs to happen um, to to deliver on on that pledge? Um, so I might uh, go in reverse order. I'll start with um, Tapiwa. Um, what uh, what would your your primary recommendation be? Sorry, that is a very very complex question. But I mean, and I think the one recommendation is don't focus so much on the numbers because I think people look at this one million goal and say, oh, it's insurmountable. But you need to understand that it's incremental, and the way the the target has been set up in the roadmap. It's something that can be doable. Like if people just meet the commitments, you've pledged to receive 5,000 individuals next year, or you've committed to receive 1,000 individuals next year, do that. Then that way you don't have the challenge of next year. Because if you don't do that next year, then the following year, it's cumulative and the numbers are not quite adding up. But really also investing in long-term integration strategies is key, especially on monitoring and evaluation policies that allow uh, to foster that positive narrative in terms of the refugees that have been contributing. And we know, as has been lighted with the previous recommendations there that you know, uh, people are always on the move. These are just additional people who have additional needs and that need protection and uh, move away from looking at it as bringing in more people, but look at it as building from what we already have and fostering more positive outcomes in the future. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tapi. Well, I'll go to you, Natalie, next. Uh, I'm going to be pragmatic and say I think funding, funding is the one, is the is the is what you know can make the difference. You know, yeah, funding and resources always, um, always very important. And I think, um, but then also made the the interesting point with regard to funding that um, funding also needs to be accessible by cities and able to be easily applied for and accessed, which is can definitely be a a challenge. Um, particularly when we look at uh, funding like EU level funding, which is perhaps um, not as accessible. Uh, so I'll turn to Belen. If you were to wave your magic wand, what would you do? Yeah, that's a, a tricky question. Um, very interesting one. I think I I just um, echoing here what P1 Natalie have already said. Um, I think it's definitely important that we not only like focus on numbers, uh, but 
actually try to to go a bit beyond that and uh, see what needs to to be happening at the same place. And I think more awareness really is also like crucial. More awareness. Uh, this means about the the needs of refugees, but also that the the role that local authorities and that communities can have. I think Natalie, you also mentioned very well uh, that it's very powerful when when hosts basically take a, take an active role uh, and can really you can really untap uh, a lot more like resources and and efforts to to be geared toward resettling refugees. Although I hear you to be well that um, many of these pathways are often like just complement or like in, instead of like resettlement places. So I, I I agree that there should be more additional uh, pathways, but I think just in general, like more awareness about the, the need for for um, resettling refugees uh, and also like what opportunities are there for local authorities or for local um, communities to step in and take a more active role. I think I've heard like many times about many people like not really being aware of maybe community sponsorship programs or like not being sure like what they can they can do on their side. So I think uh, investing more on this will be will be key. Thank you so much, Belen. And we have a few questions coming in now. Um, I invite again everyone to put their questions in the chat. Um, and I want to start with a question that we've gotten specifically for um, for Natalie uh, about the um, the strategy that Bristol has developed to um, support and and engage with uh, migrant and refugee populations. Uh, could you say a little bit more about the the process for developing the strategy, and also particularly uh, whether or not there are any lessons that you've drawn based on that experience? that you would offer to other cities on how to um, engage more strategically around welcoming also with the national government. Okay, um, so the first step is to do a needs assessment. So I think Belen touched on the, the fact that sometimes cities don't know who's in their cities, you know, don't have the up-to-date, that's one of the challenges. Who's there? Who's got status? Who's, these people have moved around? So that's one of the things, having that information. So the local authority has had to go out and get that information themselves and do a needs assessment and look at what the needs are and what the challenges are. So it's looking at things like housing, school places, legal aid provision, the immediate basic needs that people meet, need met. And also is tied into long longer term goals, so about health inequalities. So it's, it's a mixture of both looking at in, um, like data on health inequality in general across the population and how vulnerable populations can be included in plans that the city has for for the whole population in the future, things like that. And I, I just want to say, I really liked what Tapiwa just said, and I just wrote it down, that it, resettlement is based on protection, not integration. Right? I really like that. And I think that joins in to this strategy question and also the other question about funding that as long as we you know this is really important, if we're thinking about the aim of the funding and the aims that we have, and so we're not looking at just, you know, like the integrated criteria of integration. So it's not only about that, like the funding shouldn't be only ring-fenced to meet data, but we need to look at what the people's needs. So I think needs assessment is the most important part of any strategy first to under really understand the needs. Yeah, that's my opinion. Yeah. Thank you so much, Natalie. 
Uh, we have a, a few more really interesting questions coming in. Um, I want to start with uh, with one about uh, integration being a two-way street, which someone had, had mentioned. Um, the question says, I love the point that integration is a two-way two street. With that in mind, what are some efforts to educate local communities about refugees and resettlement to garner more support and involvement of citizens? And Milan, I'll come to you first. Have you come across um, any examples of this in your research? Um, yes, so I think in terms of how the, the the local communities have been involved, again, I think community sponsorship is a great example of uh, how these local um, communities can take a more active role. And uh, and I also seen uh, like some one question on people with lived experience. And I think just like also, um, I think they're part of this like broader community support and just like involving them in terms of uh, mentoring programs or also in terms of the, the specific design. It's also like very, very important to keep in mind. Thank you, Valen. And, and Tapiwa or Natalie, would you like to come in with any um, any examples of the preparation and education of local communities as well from your work? Um, in terms of being, being prepared, um, language is probably the most important thing. So access to your own language from the beginning, access to resources or just somebody to speak to in your own language. I think that's one of the most important things that's needed for local communities to, to, to prepare, to welcome somebody. Um, I think I'm looking a bit more in terms of kind of institutions or, you know, like schools, if we think of a school and looking at kind of the, our inclusion and equalities policies, um, but also just very basic, what happens on the first day, uh, who comes to greet you, uh, building that trust, who's, if somebody being curious who you are, wait, so it's the same. If we look at a school and then maybe we can replicate it in other areas. Um, so just those very, very basic first steps and what somebody needs to access and to feel that they belong and having everything in place. And also, yeah, I hope that answered the question. Thank you so much. And uh, Tapiwa? Yeah, I mean, our role is generally we engage in general advocacy in this field in different contexts. Uh, for instance, we have been visiting when the NEST program was being developed in Germany or being up upgraded, we visited the reception facilities and had discussions with relevant authorities to see how, like to influence how the improvement would be made of those area. Uh, media work on the situation of refugees to encourage understanding, that goes broadly, but it also does influence local authorities' engagement. Uh, we, like, yeah, we, depending on the context and the leeway within which we have, we're always engaged and before refugees arrive and when it comes to planning the reception programs. We, uh, with the community sponsorship programs, we've also been involved in the design and always encouraged that this should include persons with lived experience. Uh, similarly, with uh, integration programs, anything, the involvement of persons with lived experience is encouraged at all different levels. We have uh, been part of different working groups that are involved in integration, like uh, Every year, there's an annual working group on resettlement, which is focuses on post-arrival supports. And this is usually the one area where, although it's mostly NGOs focused, but depending on the city that that's taking place in, we'll always, like last year, we had the mayor of, of uh, Cork Islands coming to kind of like give us an overview and learn from other areas on how integration supports are working. I'm happy, I think you've actually um, just wonderfully set up the next question, which is, 
whether or not there are any examples of trans-local cooperation between cities that actually um, uh, bypass national governments, or maybe I should say work to support, uh, provide mutual support to cities and you know, perhaps you know, coalition building as well around resettlement. Uh, it sounds like there are some examples, Would you? Um, but perhaps you could elaborate a bit further on how you've seen that work. Yeah, I wouldn't call it bypassing because these, when the the example that I gave of the working group on uh, resettlement, which focuses on integration, is actually it's uh, organized with the states at the national level. But then the actual session, the working group, happens in a local context uh, where there's active integration of refugees going on that have arrived on resettlemental pathways. So each year it happens uh, in a city that has been uh, decided at the national government level that has been very actively involved in receiving refugees coming in on resettlement programs. Uh, so, and then of course, uh, unfortunately, I guess the gap in there is that depending on who states decide to bring on their delegations, some involve local cities, like we've seen, for instance, Canada and USA, they would bring local, as part of the government delegation, local authorities involved in this program. And then you have NGOs also involved in the space. And it's always an exchange of ideas, these site visits that happen and, you know, just to see what's working or what's not. And it really helps. And actually the most recent version ended up in a working group on accommodation to see how accommodation challenges that have been experienced in the last three years can be resolved. I can share more information separately if needed. Thank you so much, Tapiwa. And I have to apologize, my internet cut out briefly. And so I um, was was briefly offline, uh, but I caught the, the end of, of your comments. Um, so thank you so much. Uh, I, I want to turn um, just briefly to uh, maybe to build up. Yes. Um, so I think we have also seen uh, in our study, like several uh, initiatives that have not really, trans I mean, in some cases like transnational uh, started by for example, um, the city of Barcelona, and then it's it kept growing and growing. And I know they are still like cooperating on on some issues. So there are some examples, and we can we can maybe share some of those if you're um, interested. Just like feel free to reach out, and I can mention some of these initiatives that we yeah learn about on in terms of how um, they have been cooperating. Um, I maybe the other um, because I see that Susan is frozen still. So maybe just you one more question that I thought it would be interesting. Um, and I think Tapi and I have already briefly touched on it, but I'm about how to involve refugees with live experience. But Natalie, I just wanted to to give the floor to you and see if you have anything else to add on how we can like really bring them um, in and maybe make sure that they also have the opportunity to to inform the role that local authorities are playing and to inform at the end of the day how we deliver on pledges. Um, I think um, removing barriers to employment and having um, like um, a commitment to employing lived experience, people with lived experience. Um, so having a look at our recruitment processes to favour the recruitment as well, people with lived experience um, and, and having like unpicking whether our recruitment practices whether they are institutionally racist, you know, uh, I think that's really important. But also, um, like in Bristol, the voluntary sector, um, most voluntary sector organisations will also possibly have a members group uh, where we <coughs> consult with members. Uh, we also have in Bristol one voluntary sector organisation. Um, it's called Refugee Women of Bristol. And they actually have a commitment that every single trustee 
and member of staff is somebody from lived experience. So it's about empowering um, people with lived experience to also um, take on these those roles of influence. Um, yeah, I think that's yeah that's my opinion. Yeah, and it's about cons consultation and having voice and influence groups, and it's it's about listening. Yes. Uh, so maybe just. As I see that we have only five minutes uh, left, I will. Uh, I wanted to ask, like, when we we come to the DRF again, like in five years from now, is there's anything that you think should be done different in terms of how uh, local actors are involved in the in the pledging exercise? Uh, yeah, maybe Tapiwa first, and then Natalie, and then I can maybe share some some reflections. Uh, thanks, Belen. I think I will emphasize the point uh, that I made earlier. The GRF is not a one-time event. It's an ongoing process. So ideally, once we've had the GRF, the session, we have the mayors coming in, we have different pledges being made in. Between now and the next GRF in 2027, I believe, there should be work continuously to harness this through the roadmap that I've referenced and the implementation of clear activities and projects that involve local authorities in expanding these programs so that at the end of the GRF, you can just be showcasing where we've been or what we've done and then it's more of a lessons learned exercise. Uh, that's just a point in time for us to measure the progress being made, but the work is actually ongoing on a daily basis. The GRF is just a point in time to measure the progress and see where we where we can improve and make more commitments. Um, I, I would just say, yeah, I would just follow up on that and say, you know, better collaboration, growing on the collaboration which has already started and, um, yeah, taking into account the roles the cities play and valuing, valuing that role, I think. Thank you, Natalie, and thank you, Tapiwa. I think, uh, yes, also the, the exercise of the mega pledges, I think this year has been very interesting. And also the fact that, the, as you pointed out, Tapiwa, that the Mayor's Migration Council is meeting uh, to discuss several topics. I think it would be great if uh, in the coming years we can also add resettlement and pathways to, to that agenda. Um, and yeah, maybe as we mentioned earlier, not just focus on on numbers, but actually uh, facilitate some of the conversations around capacity and how to how to really build the infrastructure that is, that is needed around resettlement. Um, so with that, and I, because uh, I think Susan's internet is a bit uh, on and off still, so maybe just wanted to say thank you uh, to everyone and apologize if any of the questions were unanswered. Um, but yeah, we we tried to get as many as we could in the in the time that we have. Uh, but please feel free to reach out if you had any other any other questions. Uh, as you know, an audio and video recording will be available on the website in the coming days. And um, yes, and, and re you, re any reporters on uh, the call can contact Michelle Meislat at uh, M M um, I T T E L S. T-A-D-T at uh, migrationpolicy.org for any questions. And uh, please make sure to, to also check the report that we shared a couple of uh, summary findings earlier today. And uh, do not hesitate to reach out if you have any further questions and comments. And thank you very much, uh, Tapiwa and Natalie, for being here with us today.